This summer, we have a very particular focus, and his name is Jesus. We are focusing on Jesus, and we're here to focus on what the Bible has to say, say to us about living our lives in a Jesus-treasuring church. And our primary text for the entire summer is Acts chapter 2. And so far we've seen over the last two Lord's Days that when Jesus is the great treasure of a church, there will be at least 12 fruits. We have seen four of those. July 3rd, we saw from Acts 2 that two fruits that grow out of in abundance in a Jesus treasuring church are worship and prayer. Last Lord's Day, we saw that learning and discipleship also spring up in a congregation that loves the Lord Jesus. And today we'll focus on two more fruits, namely fellowship and community. But I said there are 12, that's six. The next are, Lord willing, next Sunday, outreach and evangelism. The following Lord's Day, mercy and social concern. August the 14th, a yearning for the glory of God to fill the entire earth. And finally, on August 28th, really the foundation from which they all spring, a deep experiential knowledge of the love of Christ. Those are fruits that grow in abundance in a church that treasures Jesus. And today's focus, as I mentioned, is fellowship and community. So let's turn our attention to God's Word, to taste, not just see, but taste and see the delectable fruits that grow out of the soil of love for Jesus in the early church. Acts chapter 2, our sermon text will begin, I'm going to pick up in verse 36 and read through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36, hear the word of the living God. Now when they heard this, uh, pardon me, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles' And all those who had believed 
were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, we thank you for your word written. And we ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the words that we have just heard would come and illumine our mind and our heart to both understand, believe, and obey. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to restate the thrust of this sermon series, we're looking at the fruits that the Spirit of God produces in a Jesus-treasuring church. The fruit production is God's business, not ours. The abiding in Christ is our business. And I say that uh, for a bunch of reasons. One, it's John 15 biblical, but also because we've been accused, and rightfully so, I'm sure, of too oftentimes failing to preach enough application. In ten years, I don't know how many sermons have been preached here where there hasn't been a single word spoken of application, but I know there's been a lot of them because yours truly is guilty of having preached them. And I don't apologize for that. Because there is an application. Look. Look is an application. And I said a moment ago that the focus of our summer, summer sermon series, that's a tongue twister, is Jesus. He's the focus, not the fruit. And we're preaching a whole series of sermons on the fruit. <laughs> but Jesus is the focus. In this series, it's all application. Every sermon, we're taking two per Sunday, except for the final two Sundays when we take one per Lord's Day. It's worship, pray, learn, be and make disciples, live in fellowship and community, reach out to unbelievers, evangelize them, tell them the good news, get engaged in deeds of mercy, seek to affect social change through attacking the ills that are systemic in our society and systems of so-called justice. That's all application. But be reminded that every one of those are fruit. Not that we produce. We might be engaged in them all, but God is in the production of fruit business. And He does that work in the soil of churches that treasure Jesus. So the verb, the action, your to-do list is singular. The practical work, the real application that we all try to avoid. My goodness, how easy are all the distractions, even good things becoming ultimate things, when a good thing ought not be God. The practical work that is ours, that all of our hearts want to gravitate away from, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. The practical work is treasure Jesus. And if that's happening, if that is happening, then the corresponding 
biblical fruits will be born in abundance. God will overproduce the right fruit in a people that value his son preeminently. It would, on the other hand, be an exercise in futility to seek to produce God-honoring fruits if the God-honoring root is non-existent, or if it's malnourished, or if it's rotten. Now you can sustain for a little while under the influence of willpower deeds of goodness. Acts of at least a veneer of righteousness. But you can't sustain those things for a lifetime, and you can't do any of those in a way that bring honor to the heart of God if the root itself is not full of the right nutrients. In Grace Church, we're talking about life in a Jesus-treasuring church, and uh, I'm not a fan of sermons where you can come and avoid uh, being dealt with. I don't like... uh, when I go home and I think, man, it sure would have been good if so-and-so was there. Because I know that I hadn't been listening to the Holy Spirit speak to me. So it's one thing to talk about life in a Jesus-treasuring church. And it's another thing to admit that Grace Church will be as Christ-treasuring insofar as the individual members of Grace Church treasure Christ. We're not a Jesus-treasuring church if the people who make up the church don't treasure Jesus. But if we will, God makes extraordinary promises about the extraordinary fruit that he would produce. So to summarize, the fruits that we're examining today, fellowship and community, were produced in abundance in the early church, in the book of Acts, because the church was intoxicated. Were they not accused of being drunk? In Acts chapter 2, if you've read it, and they say, we're not drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. I love that response. (laughs) It's only 9 o'clock, we're not drunk yet. (laughs) That's what it sounds like to me. History says, by the way, we're off manuscript now, that the reason we meet at 10 a.m. or before noon is because Martin Luther would have been sloppy drunk by afternoon, so the Reformation took place, and uh, yeah, well, there you have it. (laughs) They're accused of being drunk, They are intoxicated, but it's not with wine. The overabundance of good fruit in the early church that we find in the book of Acts is because the individuals who comprised the community of saints, the local church here in this case in Jerusalem, was intoxicated with the gospel and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that said... Let's look at two of the fruits that are born out of that. And then let's put our life in front of the mirror of God's Word and ask Him to examine us and to make us more like Christ. A local church that joins God in treasuring Jesus the Lord. I want you to notice before we even look at fellowship and community, one little statement here in verse 41. Those who received His Word. What Word? The whole sermon in Acts 2 can be summarized under the banner. It's the day of Pentecost. The sermon can be summarized as this is that. Peter picks up the book of Joel. Peter picks up the Psalms. And he says to the people, what you see today is what they wrote about. This is that. And then 
in verse 41, those who received His Word. They received that. Interpretation? They believed that the entire Old Testament record was about the person and gospel work of Jesus who died on Calvary to save sinners as wretched as us. So these people say, what must we do? Peter says, repent. If you'll turn from your sin, there's grace for you too. And prove that you're willing to confess Jesus as Lord by being baptized, demonstrating his lordship over your life, and you'll get the forgiveness of your sins also. Those who receive that word, namely, Christ is all. Jesus is everything. Those who received that word, verse 41, instantaneously, they didn't have to wait for a cycle of a season of agriculture to happen. Instantaneously, God started producing fruit. It was budding out of their life. They were previously dead in their trespasses and sin, but like Aaron's rod in the Old Testament that was cut off from the tree from which it was taken began to bud. It's the power of regeneration. When the Holy Spirit goes into a dead carcass, He brings out the life of Jesus. Those who received His Word, namely that Christ is all, instantaneously started practicing fellowship and community. Let's take them one at a time. Fellowship. I want you to notice the descriptions that the Holy Spirit says to us about this church. And let's ask, could the same be said of us today? Meaning, every single one of us. Verse 42. Continually devoting themselves to fellowship. 42. Continually devoting themselves to breaking bread. 44. All those who had believed, I love this word, were together. 44, those who had believed, believed had all things in common. 45, they were sharing with all as anyone might have need. 46, day by day, love this, with one mind. 46, breaking bread from house to house. 46, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. 47, they were praising God. That's the way the Holy Spirit describes this church. Derek Thomas, he's a pastor down in Jackson, Mississippi, wrote about this passage. Few Bible words have suffered more distortion than the word fellowship. We commonly reduce it, Thomas says, to chatter and cookies in the church hall, thinking that is what the New Testament had in mind. Clearly, Acts chapter 2 has got more in mind than that, right? We call it the fellowship hall. And we talk about enjoying fellowship with one another. But biblically, what is that? Acts chapter 2 sounds like a whole lot of life together. A lot of life together. These aren't people who infrequently cross paths with one another. These are people who are intentionally, or to use the Holy Spirit's choice word, devotedly pursuing each other. They're on a mission to live their life in community and fellowship. Isn't that fundamentally what the gospel does to us? The gospel, is it not all about reconciliation and fellowship? Isn't that the heart of our whole faith? This audacious message that there's a God in heaven who sent His Son to die for us so that we could be reconciled to Him and have fellowship with Him. So before we even 
think about fellowship with one another and the glorious fruit that the Spirit loves to produce in local churches that treasure Jesus, that is that, let's talk first about fellowship with God as the ground upon which our fellowship with one another is built. Acts chapter 2 is mainly about what God has done in Christ, in the gospel, to save sinners. The this is that sermon. You can be saved. All you nations out there. God's not ethnocentric. It's not for Israel only. Anybody can get in on this free mercy because Jesus is that great a Savior. The main message of Acts 2 is about what God has done in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Christ, God will forgive all your sins. And if He does that, He will certainly do that in order to reconcile us to Himself. But the height of the Gospel, as audacious as this may sound, is not only a reconciled standing with God, but mainly ongoing fellowship with God. If we have any accurate barometer of what fellowship among ourselves really is, we've got to begin not with looking at one another and how we treat each other, but looking at God and how He has treated us. Looking at not only how God has treated us, but look at the God who so treats us. You know that God has fellowship with God. God enjoys the company of Himself. There is only one God. And that one God is triune. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This I believe. That's why we sang it and read the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. God, three in one. God enjoys the company of Himself. And He's committed to Himself. Intentionally, if you will. In the New Testament, believers, they shared food with each other. Acts 2 tells us that plainly. Because they belonged to a God who had shared Himself with us. 1 Corinthians 1.9, is this not the heart of the Gospel? God is faithful. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is who our God is, and this is the fellowship into which He invites us. So God's people are to look at God's own fellowship with God in order to have a ground for our fellowship with each other, and we're to pursue fellowship with each other based on the gospel where God has reconciled us to himself and given us fellowship with him forever. So I'm going to give some uh, dating advice here. You ready for this one? Y'all you young people who someday will maybe find a match. Dating advice. How How do you go about finding somebody? Answer. Among other ways, you chase God with all your heart. You fix your eyes on Jesus, you don't look for anybody. Don't look around you a bit. Don't check out her, don't check out him. Look at Jesus. 
vehemently, violently pursue him, aggressively go after him, devour your Bible, immerse your life in prayer, live your life in this book, and as I wrote to my 10-year-old son in a new Bible, we got him last month, live your life in this book and live your life on your knees. And then, every so often, maybe once a decade would be good, look around and see if anybody else is keeping up. And if they are, they might be a good candidate. Because our main aim in life as God's people is God. And as we pursue Him, we want to call others into fellowship with Him. But the fellowship we have with each other, we want it to be this 1 John 1-3. It was prayed two times in the season of prayer a moment ago without me prompting either of those brothers. 1 John 1-3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the way we are called to live our lives as God's people. Marriage, family, church, everywhere. That leads us to our second point. Not only fellowship with God, but fellowship with God's people. What's that supposed to look like? Well, let it be duly noted that God never calls anyone into fellowship with Himself that He does not also call into fellowship with His people. Can we say that again? You can't say, I love you, Jesus. I just hate your bride. Guess who you're not going to spend a lot of time with if you say to Jordan Thomas, I like you a lot, I just don't like your wife. You're not spending a lot of time with me. God never calls anybody into fellowship with Himself that he does not also call into fellowship with his people. Period. There's not a Christianity other than that in Scripture. Acts chapter 2, God's people were compelled to put their hand down deep in their pocket and pull out their resources to meet the needs of their brethren because God had reached into his own heart and brought out his son to meet the greatest need of our souls. Fellowship in the New Testament church was not sitting around a campfire singing kumbaya and having mushy-gushy, sentimental, happy-go-lucky feelings about Jesus. It was a commitment to carry one another's crosses because Jesus Christ has carried our cross. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as God Himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses all our sins. I don't know another Christianity than that. That's one of the distinguishing fruits of a Jesus-treasuring church in the book of Acts. This kind of fellowship. This kind of gospel-rooted, our God loves the company of Himself. In the gospel, He calls us into fellowship with Himself, forgiving our sins, reconciling us to Himself through Christ, and He reconciles us to His people in the great work of the gospel. It's this kind of fellowship. It's so replete in the New Testament, we wouldn't even dare to be able to exhaust all the references that are in Scripture under this theme if we use the rest of our day to try to do it. On the back of our church prayer card, it's about this size, it's in my other Bible at home on my desk, but 
there are three verses listed on the back of it. All the members' names on one side, broken down Monday through Friday. On the back of it, three verses. And nine blank spots for you to pick nine of those names after you pray about it and say, God, who do you want to use me to encourage? And I just like to believe that the Holy Spirit's good at doing equations. And somehow or another, without us micromanaging it, everybody's name in the whole church will get on the back of one of those cards. I just like to believe that, and God knows how to do it. But two of the three verses written on the back of that card are, and I quote, by this, all men will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 20 is verse number 2. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Your Christianity and the authenticity thereof is born out in the very unimpressive to the world group of people with whom you now sit. The authenticity of your Christianity or the lack thereof is born out in relationship with the people in the room with whom you now sit. That's biblical Christianity. This word devoting themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. What does that word mean? Well, let me break it down for you. It means they devoted themselves. Let's not overcomplicate this. I don't know how diligent somebody's got to be in their life practice about something for God the Holy Spirit to say, man, she sure is devoted to that. But I wonder, the Holy Spirit took inventory of my life. What would he say I'm devoted to? The New Testament church, he said, I'll tell you how I can describe them. They met his criteria in the way they proactively, intentionally, purposefully, with great priority and diligence, sought one another out so that he said about them, they're devoted to two things. The teaching of the apostles, that's the scriptures written, and fellowship. He did say in Acts chapter 1 that the 120 were also devoted to prayer. Man, wouldn't you love the Holy Spirit to describe us that way? At Grace Church, there's three main ways that we believe that this expression should take place for every member of the church. In fact, the elders have believed all these years now that if you'll just put your life on this train track, God will run you over with His grace eventually. Train track number one, corporate worship. Highest priority in your life. Schedule everything you do, all your late trips in the summer, every vacation day you've got around this. Because Hebrews 10 says, by way of command, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. How? Day after day, 
Encourage one another, Hebrews 3, so long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't forsake assembling together, but just get together. Because that actually encourages the other saints. So corporate worship is one way to practice Christian fellowship. It is a main way to practice Christian fellowship. But let's admit it. Sunday gatherings may be very high on some things on the measuring scale, but they're very low on other things. They're very high on truth and doctrine and vertical worship. Praise God. Zero apologies. More of that, please, Holy Spirit. But they're very low on relational connectivity. You might have a good conversation here or there in the hallway or standing around these chairs at some point, but you're probably not going deep, not going deep with each other on Sunday mornings. That's why we believe you need to stand in the middle of another train track called small groups. We unapologetically restrict those only to church members. Partly because we want you to know who you're in the room with and be totally free to share anything that's on your heart. And if you don't know Bob or Joe or Susie or Mary, you're probably not going to be as vulnerable. And we want those relationships to be cultivated because if you stand on the train track of small groups that are rooted in God's Word, full of prayer, you love each other, you're trying to help each other, maybe you're this sanctified and your brother is this sanctified, but you're trying to help each other take one more step toward Jesus, we believe that God's grace will hunt you down in that manner of fellowship. Definitely truth-driven in that context, but higher on relational connectivity. So that's two of three ways. Just show up to corporate worship and Show up to your small group, and we believe God will run over you eventually with the freight train of His grace. Steve Childers said about small groups, by the way, they broke bread in their homes, verse 46. If we put this together with statements like Acts 20.20 and 1 Corinthians 16.9, where they greeted the church that met in their house, in other verses like it, Childers says, we can see the importance of small group community in the early church. I don't know if that feels negotiable for you, but it feels biblical to me. Just say, I'm committed. And let me just quantify for a minute for everybody's help. When we say members covenant together to to be actively involved, I'm citing our church covenant in corporate worship, corporate prayer, and the small group life of this church, we're talking about 12 Wednesday nights per year. That's not a lot. Commit yourself to that. Six for the men in the spring. Six for the men in the fall. Same for the ladies. That's not a lot out of 52. Commit yourself to that. But there's a third railroad track that we believe you should stand on because we believe God will mow you down with good stuff. And that's interpersonal discipleship. Intentional relationships to grow together in Christ, to bear one another's burdens, and to put your finger on chapter and verse in the Bible and steep your souls in the Word of God. And we believe we all should do that. Everybody. Disciple your children if you're a parent. Disciple your brothers or sisters in Christ in those gender-specific, good, Christ-honoring relationships. Well, more could be said on that. But our fellowship with one another, what we're trying to say in simple terms could be said like this. In the gospel, which Peter the Apostle preached in Acts chapter 2, God reconciles sinners to himself and he unites them to one another. I'll use his word 
in devoted fellowship. But note that the fellowship wasn't just random with anybody out there who called themselves a Christian. It was with those who were in their local church. And yes, there may have been plenty of house churches in the New Testament. I've read uh, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16. I know about Nympha's house and the church that met there in Colossians 4. I know about the church in Philemon, verse 2, that met in Archippus' house. But Acts 2 is not one of those. Acts 2 is not a house church. And yes, there were 3,000 people in it. And yes, they did all meet together. And I don't need special powers of interpretation to figure it out because it's Acts 2, verse 44. And Acts 4, verse 31 and 32. All of them in Solomon's portico and house to house. Well, that's fellowship. Finally, community. There's a lot of talk about community these days, and that word shows up in all sorts of Christian circles. Even uh, our mother church up in Minneapolis for years and years, and maybe still today, had the name of this church, Grace Community Church, and I'm not mad about that, but that's not our name. Our name is Grace Church. And uh, we actually did think, for what it's worth, about whether or not to put that word or other words in between grace and church, and we opted not to because there's just so many, lots and lots of other fruits that we hope that the grace of God produces among us. So we didn't think it was fair to uh, give props to community over other good graces, so there you have it. But community, what is it? What is gospel community? We've talked about fellowship, and there is definitely overlap between fellowship and community, but there's also some uniqueness to them. Our text would describe it in phrases like verse 44. Those who had believed were together. Now that definitely means physical proximity. They were actually in the same place geographically. But it means more than that, because it says they also had one mind. They were together in that way also. In verse 44, they in fact had all their stuff in common. It doesn't mean that they eschewed private property ownership or personal wealth building or owning their own investments. It does not mean that. But it does mean that their primary thought about their stuff was that it was leverageable, for whatever you need. So they were together in that way. They had that kind of community. Or verse 45, they were sharing with one another. They were in community with specific people whose names and faces that they knew. There are other phrases even in this passage that touch on the rich dynamic of spirit-wrought community that the Holy Spirit was producing in this Jesus-treasuring church. Let's just talk about community honestly. All right, this is buckled the seatbelt time. We all long for this. We're made for this. We're hardwired for this. And our longing for community is such a good thing. God made us this way, and it's a good thing. In fact, we've already touched on the fact that the only God that exists exists in everlasting community with Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Diverse persons, perfect harmony, together sharing joy, 
love and fellowship. And as creatures, human beings who are made in God's image, we too are designed for community. Now it's honest talk time. Sin has deeply distorted this good desire. We believe in total depravity. When I say deeply distorted, I mean if you put blue food coloring in your water this afternoon, and you pour that cup of water into ten other cups, there's going to be a tint of blue in every one of them. I mean deeply distorted. Everything about our desire for community has been distorted by sin. And it causes us This sinful reality causes us to search for communal fulfillment in illegitimate ways. Constantly. You are in community. The question is not whether or not you are in community, it's how. So I did a quick search to find out communities in Memphis that you can be part of. You can find a gated community, and we all know what that is. You can also find a motorcycle riding community. Right here in Memphis, we have homeschool communities and every single sport you could imagine, sport communities. You can get on a hunting club, fishing club, gun club, golf club. You can even find extreme coupon communities. You can get a sewing community right here in the good old city of Memphis. And as a miserable commentary on the free fall of our distorted humanity, as of two weeks ago, you can even find a Pokemon Go community right here in Memphis, Tennessee. God help us. That doesn't account for all kind of communities you can find that don't have an online presence, like the gangs in our city and this neighborhood by the dozen. There are hate group communities right here in Memphis that are all built on their worst fear. Whatever their worst fear is, they got a hate group to be the alternative. There are isolationist communities out in the rural areas east and north of here. There's pockets in our cities where the LGBT demographic tends to cluster. There's identifiable areas where internationals, depending on the country of origin from which they came, can readily be found. There are communities all over Memphis. We're finding them constantly. You're probably part of seven or eight different ones that I didn't even list, and hopefully they're not the illegal brand. Do we need to go on demonstrating that community is not something we need to create in the church? It's already here. We've got to corral it around the Bible's unifying center. The one thing that Christians most have in common is Christ. He is to be the source of our community. Period. That was true in the early church in the book of Acts, and it's true today. So now let's talk about this phrase in verse 46, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple. They were unified. Community is about unity, and communion is about union. But their unity, their with-one-mindedness, their unity was not uniformity. And if that doesn't get a loud amen out of you yet, I want you to know that you're supposed to be the sanctified you. 
You're not supposed to be anybody else. God didn't make a mistake in his endless creativity when he designed you. And he gave you your preferences. And insofar as they're not sinful, go for it. Unity is not uniformity. Being with one mind does not mean they were all robotically thinking the same thing. If that sounds to you, with one mind, day by day, in the temple, if that sounds to you like they had the exact same likes and preferences, and they had the exact same food in their refrigerator at home, and they spent their money on the exact same entertainment, then you totally missed the point. Don't make any mistake. They were deeply unified, but they were not uniform. That's why we don't think it's wise. And we've said this for 10 years. This isn't any new statement here. We do not think it's wise to plant your fill-in-the-blank church. Your motorcycle church, those exist. Hipster churches, those exist. Cowboy church, traditional church, contemporary church, name it, your church. Whatever your favorite unifying principle is, go get you a church that's about that. God forbid. Would to God that this church would have groups of people that were passionate about every one of those things I just mentioned. As came out so beautifully in one of the prayers that was prayed, the diversity about which, uh, for which we strive is not making a God out of that diversity, but it's actually making a God out of God who Himself in His Son is both lion and lamb. It doesn't get any more diverse than that. He's at the same time meek, humble, and also king and judge who will exact vengeance on all of His enemies though He will pardon every person who comes to him in contrition. Because our God is who he is, we therefore go after all types of people. So we're not the motorcycle church or the stay-at-home mom church. We're not the reformed church or whatever else you want to fill in the blank church. God, please, please, Lord, make us a church, a Jesus-treasuring one. And I think we should reach all those other people for Christ too and tell them, they can join us in forsaking their idols just like we forsake ours. So that my favorite thing doesn't get to be the main thing here and neither does yours. Jesus is heaven's favorite and he'll be our favorite as well. The unifying center of a local church is Christ Jesus. That's real commu community, biblically speaking. The Father seeing the reflection of his own glory in the face of his Son in the power of the Holy Spirit is the bedrock of true community. And if we're going to have any real biblical community, it will be us joining God in seeing the reflection of His resplendent glory in the face of His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or, to put it another way, join God in delighting in what God delights in, which is God. So let's not mistake uniformity for unity. You can find uniform people all over the place. Again, go Google communities in Memphis. We're not after uniformity. We're after unity. Now you may think I'm joking about this, but it's out there. You may love Star Wars. And if you do, pity your soul. God is still sanctifying you, and we will be patient. But please, please let's not build a Star Wars church. You get it, right? Now, that's a silly example of the nonsense that we all would love to put right in the center instead of Jesus. 
Let's not shift anything to center in church essentials other than the one who is essential, and his name is Jesus. So at some point, if we're going to be biblical, we've got to stop calling some things a church because biblically there's only one kind of church, a Jesus-treasuring church. That's it. So we're not doing a sermon series on being a Jesus-treasuring church because we think that's a cool thing to stick in the middle of the summer when everybody goes away on vacation until we can get to the good stuff when everybody's back in the fall. What we're saying is, there's not another kind. This is it. A church, biblically speaking, is a blood-bought collection of redeemed sinners who have surrendered themselves entirely, body, soul, and mind, every possession, every relationship, every longing, every dream, every ambition we could ever have. We crawl it up on the altar as a living sacrifice and give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ collectively and we confessionally covenant together to help one another grow in obedience to all God's commands. If you don't want that, we got nothing to offer you. There is no room at the center of that community for anybody other than Jesus. So our point is this. Life in a Jesus-treasuring church will be demonstrably Jesus-treasuring. And our unity in community will exist not in uniformity and not in homogeneity. Everybody having to be just alike. How boring would the world be if everybody was like me? Not homogeneity, but amazing diversity because we all have the singular fixation on the Savior Himself. There's common ground. Well, where ought this community be made manifest? I will say uh, less than I have prepared to close. Corporately and interpersonally. I want to say several things about both of those, but I'll say a few things about both of those. Corporately, this unity and community and fellowship ought to be manifest. Anybody who comes here who doesn't know us should experience 1 Corinthians 14, which we can't manufacture. 1 Corinthians 14 says, when an unbeliever comes in among you, they will fall on their face and say, certainly, God is here. So corporately, our fellowship and community ought to manifest the centrality of Jesus and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And you can't manufacture that. There have been a lot of people who've been praying long and hard for God to do that kind of work among us. And if He so pleases, He will. But we ought to cultivate the kind of lives and corporate life that God would be pleased to dwell among. So our so-called unity outside of Christ, if it begins with our personal preferences or prejudices or whims, what I like or what you like, or who I can find that likes what I like, if that becomes the foundation for our affinity group, I quit. But if the gospel is the core, if we don't begin with you or me, but if we begin with God, who He is and what He has done in Christ to reconcile us to Himself, now we've got something to be unified about. So corporately, say it, don't say it, say it, don't say it. Say it. Yeah. Let's not throw self-righteous stones at each other 
under the banner of what I'm about to say. There's your preface. But can we please, at least right after the service, for two minutes, not talk about the game? Can we really please, as awkward as it's going to be when you walk up to me or her or him or them, and try to talk about Jesus? Can we figure that out? Because he demonstrably needs to be the center of our corporate gathering. Well, more could be said, and I'll skip it. What about interpersonally? That's really where the cultivation happens. I get that stage fright's a real thing, and I say I still get butterflies when I stand in front of people. The only difference is they fly in formation. But I still get them, and nervousness is a real thing. I get that some people don't like to talk in public. That's okay. That's part of the way God made you. Maybe there are some sinful things in that. Fear of man, approval of man. That's not always the case, but oftentimes that's the case. So if there are sinful things, repent. If that's just your personality, okay. But I'll tell you how to cultivate corporate Christ-centeredness. One-on-one. If I talk with Jim or Rick about Jesus, and then I see Jim and Rick, we can talk about Jesus. So let's cultivate that interpersonally. That's what the New Testament church was doing. I see it in verse 44, 45, 46. I also see it in Hebrews 3 and Acts 6 and Hebrews 12. It's in Acts 2, 47. We can say a lot about that. Our life in Christ spills over in interpersonal and corporate fellowship. I like, it, I like to say it this way. Jesus is too big to keep to yourself. And he's too big to keep to my little relationship with one or two people. He's so big that he has to fill up the whole life of the whole church because that's just who he is, not who we have to make him to be. So, in application, in closing, for real, number one, strive for, let me use God's word, devote yourself to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in this church. Especially those with whom you have nothing in common except for Jesus. Go after the people who are least like you except for the thing that is most important to both of you. Jesus. People leave good churches in our land all the time because they don't live in the Middle East where there's one meeting underground with five people and then have to walk across a landmine to find another one. But people leave good churches all the time in our culture. Good churches. We're not talking about the shysters and the fakes and the charlatans. We're talking about good churches. They leave them all the time because I've heard this statement and I quote, they don't have anything in common with the people who go there. Really? Our fellowship and community is not whether you like the same stuff as me. It's whether I love the same one as you. So let me say it clearly. It's okay to have close friends. It's not okay to have a clique inside of a church. But it is okay to have close friends with whom you share intimately, deeply, who hold you accountable, so on and so forth. But we're not saved to be exclusivistic or individualistic. Shouldn't our friendships as believers run deeper than our ever-changing preferences you do not have to have a lot in common with somebody to have a deep enduring friendship with them you just have to have God in common with them 
Because in the age to come, I promise you, God will be enough for you to have an enduring friendship with everybody who's there. Abraham had nothing in common with God. And neither do you. And he's called the friend of God. James 2.23. Third John begins by saying, the friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. There's such a biblical theme of friendship. A friend that sticks closer than a brother who in John 15.13 said, greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Christ is the center of real friendship. So seek to cultivate, be devoted to, pursue, go after on your little card that has nine blank spots, write a name or two that you'll go after in Christ-centered love that you'll pray for. Another thing is devote yourself to different kinds of fellowship, not just different people, but shoulder-to-shoulder fellowship. That's what we're doing now, pews and rows, very low on the relational grid right here. You're not building a lot of relationship with people right now. Shoulder-to-shoulder fellowship is good, but you need face-to-face, or people call it knee-to-knee. Sunday and small groups, rows and circles, both are needed, not to mention arm-in-arm where you serve Christ together, evangelizing others and doing good in the name of Jesus. So devote yourself to different kinds of fellowship with others in the name of Christ. Third, break bread together. I love how simple it really is. You know what you'll talk about when you have somebody over to your house for dinner who's a believer? I don't know. But it'll be good. So just do it. Don't plan the conversation. Don't script it. Brace yourself. Just talk while you eat together. People ring my doorbell all the time, and uh, sometimes I know them, sometimes I don't. Lately, it's been a good bit of those I don't know, but that's okay. I rarely say to those people, come on in, join us for dinner. But when you bring somebody to different sections of your house, you're saying something to them. When they stand on my front porch, and I close the door behind me, I'm saying something. When I bring them into the foyer, I'm saying something else. When I bring them into the sitting area, it's something else. But when I bring them to the dinner table, I'm saying something. Just get together in the most intimate way, which is why God gave us a meal. It says something. Fellowship. Centered around Christ. Once your enemy. Now seated at your table. Jesus. Thank you. Break bread together. Finally, meet one another's material needs. You see that the church was doing this in the book of Acts, right? They knew each other enough to know what the needs were, and nobody was so proud that they wouldn't make their need known. It's another insidious form of pride. We don't have time to unpack it. I do have to stop, so I'm going to stop with this. Meet one another's material needs. That's right here in our text. Sharing, selling possessions, meeting needs as any had a need. So here's Grace Church's strategy for meeting one another's material needs. Very simple. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Galatians 6. We have two main ways to do that. 
small group. Tell the people in your small group what your need is. And if they can meet it, they should meet it. Because God put you in that group in that semester in part for that reason. But if the, if the need materially exceeds the capacity that the group is able to fill, that's why we tithe on Sunday. We have a whole category in our budget called mercy within the church. Benevolence. Love within the church. So every time you give, a portion of that is designated to help meet needs in the body. So those are our strategies. Tell your small group, and if it exceeds that, then somebody in your small group, probably your leader, will tell one of the elders and we'll do our best to figure it out. Because God equitably distributes resources and needs in the church repetitively so that we all get to take part in that. One author said, fellowship was intense in the New Testament church. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Community was not something that just happened. They worked at it. This implies accountability with one another, a sense of responsibility to care for and support and guide each other. It was daily, verse 46. They did not just see each other on Sundays. They were involved in each other's daily lives. It was economic as well as spiritual. They had everything in common, verse 44. They recognized not only that other brothers and sisters had a claim to their time and their heart, but also their resources. This is the kind of love for one another that makes the world's head spin. All right, I promise it's the last verse. What's the love chapter? Don't say it out loud, but think about it. What's the love chapter of the Bible? You know, we, we title places. The model prayer, the Lord's prayer, the so-and-so chapter. What's the love chapter? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, all due respect, not the love chapter. 1 John 4. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And it just talks about love, 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 vertical and horizontal. There is a weird verse right in the middle of that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. Love, 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 verse 12. Love, 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 love. You know what verse 12 says? No one has seen God at any time. What? Love, nobody's seen God, love. You know why it's there? Because that's how you see Him. When the world walks in here, when an unbeliever walks in here and says, wait a minute, did the guy really just pray I'm a redneck? Yep. He did. And did he just really pray that whether you're purple or yellow or whatever else he prayed, that we would have real spirit-filled fellowship with each other? Yeah. Did we set him up for it? Nope. Because when the world sees an affluent, born with a silver spoon in your mouth, Senior adult white lady humbling herself to learn from the grace of God in an inner city African American single mother who also loves Jesus, and this one is not giving but receiving. The world walks in and says, I don't even have a category in which I can file that. Love, 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 love. Nobody's ever seen God. Let me read the rest of the verse. 
if I can find it. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. You want to see God? Love each other like that. That's fellowship. That's community. It's all rooted in the Gospel. Well, let's pray together. Father, we ask exactly what we prayed about in our season of prayer. We ask it on the basis of Acts 2 and so many other passages in the New Testament. Oh Lord, make us Ephesians 1.15. People in whom faith in the Lord Jesus is the most core reality of who we are. Faith in the Lord Jesus, but we ask you to put a magnet on that. And we ask it to be the rest of Ephesians 1.15. That we would not only individually have faith in the Lord Jesus, but we would also have love for all the saints. Make us like that, Lord. Full of love. Gospel love. Self-denying, Jesus-treasuring, devoted to one another, love. We ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name.